0: G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Thank you again, everyone. Amazing podcast support in the last few weeks, and particularly with all of our pre-Bathurst 1000 content. Thanks for listening, Uh, keep subscribing, telling your mates we wanna build and grow this over upcoming months and years to have lots of people listening to the V8 Salute podcast. So to everyone who's listening and everyone who's told their mates, thank you very much, tell even more of your mates. Now, Christmas is coming, I need to tell you that, well, you already know that because it's always coming every year, December 25, but you're also needing to find presents and we are here to help you jump on our website bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au a whole host of books and DVDs and items including our Racing the Lion Holden Illustrated History book. It has been going crazy in the last few days in the wake of the Bathurst 1000 and Garth Tanner and Shane Van Gisbergen's victory. Everyone's keen on Holden, plenty of passion out there with the fans and uh, this book has been really flying out. We've (laughs) We've been keeping busy this week packing post bags, that's for sure. It is Racing the Lion, 400 pages, hardcover book, The Illustrated History of Holden in Australian motorsport. It's a must-have and it's a a perfect Christmas present as well. Now my guest on the podcast this week is a guy who is closely associated with Holden. He was a Holden Racing Team driver for many years, who for a time was the team manager as well, but his story is so much more than that. And I think of all of the podcasts I've done in the last 18 months, this one has taken us to places far and wide away from motor racing that I think will be one that you will really enjoy. You'll get a new understanding of all sorts of things about a guy who uh, has done so much in Thomas Mezzera. Now, you notice that I said Mezzera, not Mazira, because that's how I've said it for probably 30 years, and that's how all of you have probably said it as well. But when we get the podcast started, you'll know that that was pretty much the first thing that I wanted to square up with Thomas on. Now, in part one of our two-part podcast, we cover some amazing ground. We cover his upbringing in Czechoslovakia, the communist Czechoslovakia, how he defected, how he got out, how he uh, went through various countries. He hitchhiked, he caught rides, he slept on park benches, he made it into a refugee camp in Austria, and he ended up coming to Australia, all on the back of what he saw a certain Formula 1 world champion doing. He had a dream to get to Formula 1. He didn't get there in the end, but he had a pathway and he had a plan, and it took him from Czechoslovakia, to Australia, It's an amazing story and I spent a lot of time talking with Thomas about his upbringing, his youth and how he got out and that it just blows my mind. I think you'll get so much out of it. I, I certainly did. We talk about his time racing in the UK in Formula Ford and then of course here in Australia when he got himself started when he came over here. So many great stories. Actually, there's no bad stories with Thomas. They're all amazing. They're all sensational. His stories about racing Eddie Irvine in the British Formula 4 Championship are are great. We talk about, of course, winning Bathurst in 1988, but with a bit of help from Rudy Egenberger, the late Rudy Egenberger. And I didn't know this connection to Egenberger's son, which is really interesting as well. He talks about his first drive of a Commodore that wasn't at Bathurst. It was actually in the UK. So there's plenty of stuff for us to cover in this first part. Stay tuned for part two as well. We talk about his time with Larry Perkins. And Thomas does a very good Larry impression, by the way. Of course, his time with the Holden Racing team and Peter Brock that he's so well known for. We talk about nearly getting a Formula One star to race with him in the Bathurst 1000. And of course, the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout are part of the mix as well. Now, I talked to Thomas over a landline phone call, old school. Thomas does not do Zoom, I tell you, I tell you, he does not do Zoom. I I talked to him, in fact, on the Monday after the super cheap auto Bathurst 1000. He'd spent the day watching the race on Sunday, really fascinated by the amazing contest that went on on the mountain in the race that he won with Tony Longhurst back in 1988. Anyway, we cover a lot of ground, buckle up, time to start, this is a cracker. Part one of Thomas Mezera on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Well, we have had so many people ask for this man to be on our podcast, but before I tell you who it is, well, you know who it is because you've heard the intro. I want to make sure, Thomas. Uh, thank you for joining us, first of all. But have we been getting your surname wrong for years, and does it annoy you?
1: Oh, well, I don't really know. You know, like it's lots of people call me Mezera, but. Uh... And I think Mike Raymond started. It's you know, Mike fault. Raymond? Yeah, yeah, it's all his fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my Formula 4 today, so, you know, it was Thomas Mazira, you know, like he always kept shouting and that. Uh, but, um, yeah, it doesn't really matter, isn't it? Then, uh, But it's uh, it's pronounced Mazira, actually, yeah, but doesn't matter. Mind you, Plastic got my name wrong always on a bloody Holden posters. you know, like <laughs> always put the H with Thomas, you know, oh, like that's a, annoying. Thomas without the H and on most of the posters, I still got in a garage at home. It's it's TH, you know, and plastic. And, uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter,
0: yeah. Well, I'm sure there's worse things that you've been called over the journey by various people because that's motor racing. And plastic that you mentioned is Tim Pemberton, the, the long-time Holden PR man who I worked for for a little while, and uh, I know he hasn't been too well of late, so we, uh, we'll we send a cheerio to him and we'll grab him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I had a
1: they- they actually mentioned his, his name was mentioned yesterday. I think Neil, Neil Crompton and, uh, and a They, they had a bit of a talk and that's where I sort of find out like he's, he's, uh, not travelling probably at his best, but no, no, no. Uh,
0: that's right. Yeah. As we record this podcast, it, it is the day after the 2020 Bathurst 1000, and um, just to cover that off, yeah, Tim Pymman, the Holden PR man, the boy's mentioned in the commentary on the weekend. Uh, he he took a fall and shattered his ankle, and I spoke to him a few weeks ago. He's been in hospital for many, many weeks, and he was due to go home pretty soon. So we will get Plastic, long-time motorsport guy. He was with Peter Brock for years and, and Holden stuff for, for many years. We'll get him on the pod to have a chat. But, Thomas, it is all about you, my friend, on this episode. Uh, there is so much for us to to discuss from your – well, not just your, your racing, but how you came to be in Australia. And I, I think you have told the story, I'm sure, a little bit over the years of how you came to, to get to Australia, but uh, the reality is that um, – uh, it's probably not been delved into very far by a lot of people because they, they want to talk to you about driving for Holden Racing Team and winning Bathurst and doing all the, the cool stuff you've done in race cars. But tell me about being a kid in Czechoslovakia in communist Checo back in, what, the the 50s and 60s and, and how it ended up leading you to Australia.
1: Oh, basically, you know, it was a different world back then. You know, the, uh, I grew up under real communism and... Uh, through my childhood days and all that, like going to school, uh, you know, sometimes they couldn't make their, their mind up, you know, one, one year they, they taught us in school that Stalin was very good. And then uh, two years later, they changed their mind that uh, he executed more people than Hitler. And, uh, you know, and it was really hardline sort of communist regime. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, different world, completely different world. Uh, however, you know, like, uh, there were some sort of good things, you know, under that regime. And uh, especially if you kind of show up to be a reasonably good sportsman, then, uh, then the communists, they, uh, they had a pretty good structure as for uh, sports people. And, uh, when I was young kid, I, uh, I used to play tennis in the summer and, uh, in the winter I used to ski and, uh, and when I showed up to be sort of, you know, reasonably good at sort of my young age, then, uh, I actually had to make a decision, you know, what I going to do, am I going to play tennis or am I going to ski? And, uh, and I chose skiing and, uh, we lived in a ski resort and, uh, and really, I, I was kind of felt well supported by the by the regime, you know, communist regime, through my junior days to to be like a top skier with a view to go to Olympics. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I never sort of got good enough to to make the Olympics. But uh, yeah, I, I was okay. Like at one stage, I think I was fifteen or sixteen. I uh, I came second in a in the Czech slalom championship which uh kind was was pretty good and uh, yeah but that was uh, one part of that regime that uh if you were sort of uh, talented and if you were a little bit better than some then you know you got the support you got the support from a government mm. yeah and that that was great that that helped me but uh you know, as I grew older, and uh, you know the the skis were not fast enough, and uh, and I wanted to race cars, and uh, unfortunately, something like you know racing cars and the communist regime in Czechoslovakia is one of the sports that you know never was supported really, <laughs> and uh, I uh, you know I'm, I made a plan that uh, if, if I if I want to become a bloody Formula One driver, then. Uh, you know I won't do it from Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia and uh that that was kind of a main reason while uh while I decided to to sort of uh to leave yeah
0: yeah one of the things thomas reading over the years of of sports people in those communist bloc countries they used the sport to uh not only because they were passionate and they enjoyed the sport, but they used it as their way out because they felt that they needed to go elsewhere to to get away from uh, those Eastern Bloc countries and to, to get into the Western world. Did you see that skiing was your way to get out or did you feel like you had to get out because of the car racing or was it a bit of everything?
1: Oh, well, uh, you know, the main thing with skiing, because we're like, you know, in a – Czechoslovakia in Central Europe, and and we were really relying on a on a winter months, you know, to do some skiing. Like we didn't have Alps, we didn't have glaciers, but uh, because uh, I, I was I had the opportunity to actually get out to, you know, we used to go to Italy and Austria, and uh, to go to glaciers to ski and and. Train before the snow came came in in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, mm. then uh, I had the opportunity as a as a kid to to see what the you know what the West's like. Then uh, and under age of eighteen, like I've I've been out probably about four times. You know, pre season training in these Western countries, and uh, that kind of opens your eyes up and. Uh, Obviously, I was always interested in cars in those days, and suddenly you see what you know what the cars people driving in the west and what the cars driving in the east. Then uh, you know the the decision was pretty easy for me to to make. Like you know, you want to succeed in this sport or do something. You know, you you can't stay here. You got to go out. But uh, I was kind of waiting until I get to you know over eighteen when I sort of can make that decision and, uh, and
0: leave. Yeah. What, what did your family think of the the situation of you, you, you wanting to leave and, and the passion for, for cars? Did that come from, from within the family and and what was their feeling of you when you eventually ended up, ended up leaving?
1: Um, no, not really. Like my, my dad, you know, he wanted me, you know, he, he was a good ski coach and, uh, and he taught me, you know, how to ski and, uh, you know, he he wanted me to be good on the skis. Like the the model racing, it's something I I just, yeah, I, I don't know really where it came from. But like, you know, from the age of sort of 10, 12 or something, I was absolutely mad about it trying to cut up. You know all the, oh, which was very little. You know any any articles, any photos about Formula One, and from those days, you know I made a scrapbooks and uh, and it was a bit of a childhood, childhood dream. You know I I wanted always try to make it to Formula One and uh, and uh, and do that. Yeah.
0: So is it completely predictable that a kid in Czechoslovakia's first car is a Skoda? Surely.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. It was the only car, wasn't it? Of course. Well, uh no, you had the bloody uh Russian cars, you know, you had the oh, a Lada. which was Lada, yeah, which yeah. was the fiat made under license in Russia. And uh you had the East German cars and uh but yeah, they they were no really cars coming coming from West. You you couldn't buy sort of uh in those sort of early days, yeah. Then uh, and a Skoda, yeah, that was the that was the local thing, and that's what I sort of you know, family. We had a Skoda to start with, and uh, then in the later years we actually had a Renault Eight, and uh, yeah, that was you know suddenly, you see, chooses this is much better car than a Skoda, <laughs> you know, and and to these days, like it's funny enough, you know, mm. like uh, when I see in bloody you know, in Melbourne, Melbourne Grand Prix, they always had those historic cars and all that. Then uh, I always stopped around the Renault 8 Gordini, you know, which was the racing version of the Renault 8 uh, for a rally. And they used to do good in rallies in a sort of late 60s in those days. And I always walked around the car and because that was kind of, Jesus, you know, that's a fantastic car. You know, imagine to have this. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, anyway, but my, first race car in Checo, like we made, we build a build a Skoda for a hill climb and tried uh, you know, try to race in a hill climb and uh and
0: what year was that, oh, Thomas?
1: That was in nineteen seventy nine. Early year we we built it for about took us about three years to build it. Yep. And uh and then I did sort of couple of races before I you know had the opportunity to bloody leave, and, uh, and I was lucky, you know, I won my first race, and I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, that's great, that's fantastic, and, uh, you know, I'm, here I am, you know, Formula 1, can't wait to get there, <laughs> can't do it from here, you got to bugger off and uh, and do it somewhere else, yeah. yeah. And,
0: uh, and how did, uh, I, so how, did, how long did you run that car for, a year or two? Uh, well, uh, only about a few months you know, because I
1: I left, I left in the middle of 79, you know, started, started in uh I think in a sort of May, May sort of June in that car, May, yeah, I think so, yeah, in May, June and, uh, or, or late, actually, no, late 78, it was the late 78 mm-hmm. when we finished the car, yeah, I did a couple of races then, they did a couple of races, 79, and, uh, yeah, and then in the middle of 79, in uh, in August of 79, I left. And, yeah.
0: And when you say you left, was it a case of it was a secret, you had to plan it? How did it all unfold that you, you came oh, out? Oh,
1: well, with... I, I, I planned it for uh, for a long time because uh, I still had the opportunity, you know, like to go out uh, with, a, with a ski team. But, like, for some reason, soon as I reached the age of 18, uh the communists won't let me go, you know, because my dad was a little bit uh in a bad books there as a some anti communist bloody you know club he joined and uh and he was in a bad books and as soon as I got over eighteen years of age then uh they wouldn't even let me go go with a ski team to to west like you know as as if they know it like I was planning it. After eighteen I'm gone. But uh they never let me out. And uh fortunately in a, in the summer of seventy nine there was a little bit of a loophole, a bit of an opportunity came up because uh, that's the you know, height of the summer and uh and the most uh popular destination for a holiday was to go to Bulgaria, to Black Sea because, you know, we never had a sea in there, and that was the popular destination. And uh, that uh, that summer of 79, there was an issue with uh, with uh, Romania because Romania ran out of petrol and they wouldn't sell petrol to tourists going to Bulgaria.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Then uh, allow us, all the Czech tourists were allowed to go through Yugoslavia, which Yugoslavia those days was kind of like other Western countries, you know, they wouldn't let you go there normally. But uh, they made this exemption for about a uh, month through the summer, summer times, and, uh, and that was the opportunity to sort of do a runner, because once you, you know, once you got to Yugoslavia, then uh, it, it was actually quite easy to, to get to Austria, you know, to the Western world,
0: yeah. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at attack. Supercars unforgettable. So Austria was the destination where you felt if you got there, that from there you could go wherever you chose? Or, uh, well, how how uh, did that happen? Well, you,
1: you're bloody young and naive, you know. Like, uh, But the plan was, yeah, to get to Austria and then uh, from Austria go to America because everyone's rich in America and everything's bloody easy in there to <laughs> make money and then after you make money in America, go to England and race cars. That was the save up the money and go to England and race cars. That was the plan.
0: Then, so, uh, so you left, Thomas, when you were 20. Uh, but you, yes. But, uh, I mean, the, this would blow young people's minds now, but... For for youngsters, guys, girls, their twenty first birthday is a big deal. They plan parties and they have big gatherings and all their friends and all this stuff that they plan for ages. You had yours in a refugee camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it's, right. Yeah, it's staggering. Yeah, you know, it's, it's staggering. You know, people just can't get their head around it.
1: End up uh, end up in a refugee camp in Austria after sort of you know living a few few weeks on the street and. Uh, and, uh, because I didn't really want to go to refugee camp, you know, because it's not a, like a bloody uh, holiday park. And no. then, uh, anyway, but then suddenly you got no choice, you know, because, you, uh, you know, you got to eat and, uh, and I tell you, you know, you know, what it's to be hungry, you know, like living in the streets and all that, then with no money, then anyway, then, uh, yeah, I end up in a refugee camp and immediately I applied to go to America and, uh, and they said, well, yeah, it's not a problem, but it'll take up to about, you know, 36 months. And I said, oh, I don't want to be bloody three years in a refugee camp because it was ridiculous. And, uh, but then someone said, well, you know, the, the, the fastest way out of here is to apply to go to uh, South Africa or Australia. And, uh, at that time, you would, I don't know if you remember, you're probably too young. But uh, at about. that time, in that uh, summer of 79, suddenly AJ started winning races. Yeah. Yeah, in Formula One, in uh, in Williams. And uh, and then I thought, oh, sh-, you know, like AJ of Australia. And uh, and you heard about people like uh, Ben Schuppen and Tim Schenken, because I was followed the Formula One racing. And I thought, oh, maybe Australia, maybe not a bad thing to go there and, uh, you know, save up some money in there and, and then go to England from there, like, uh, like AJ did and Schuben and Tim, they all did it. Yeah. Then, uh, anyway, then I changed my plans and, uh, and, uh, just in the Christmas, Christmas of 79, like two days before Christmas, I, uh, I arrived in Sydney. Yeah. Which was just unbelievable.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a bit further about that, but I want to backtrack just quickly too. So when that window of opportunity opened for you to to get out, how did you – I mean, were there border controls? Were you driving? Were you with friends? How did that all come to be? No, I that hitchhiked. Is, right. So I the, hitchhiked. Really? I got on the road. I got my backpack and uh, and I hitchhiked. Yeah. So, so how, did, how did this uh, – it just blows my mind, Thomas, and we haven't even got close to talking about – the car racing stuff yet, because I wanted to talk to you about this because I've I've been lucky enough to know you for a long time and never had the, the deeper chat with some of this stuff. I, I've always wanted to talk to you about this. Yeah. It blows my mind that a kid with a plan – this is a bloody movie. To be honest, this has got to be a movie I or a book. I lots, people, it lo- is lots crazy. of people saying
1: there is a room for a book. Jimmy oh. Richards always say, oh, Jimmy, oh, you should write a book. You know, you should write a book. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Mate, I, I'm up, my hand is up. If you ever want to do that book, I reckon we should do that book. But <laughs> So you hitchhike with a plan to get out of communist Czechoslovakia. Yeah, to, to yeah I hitchhiked car- through
1: Hungary through Hungary to Yugoslavia. Was that
0: dangerous? Was there any close calls oh. or things that went wrong or...?
1: Well, you know, it's pretty, kind of pretty hard when you're standing on the side of the road sometimes for six hours and no one wants to stop. Then, uh, you know, you're sort of uh, getting a bit worried. Like, you know, it's... Uh, but anyway, like, yeah, you just keep doing it. When you're young, you don't think about bloody any other things, yeah? You you just uh, do what you want to do, you know, following what you want to do. And, uh, what did and I actually made it in... Uh, in one day, like from our little ski resort, I, I hitchhiked to, to about to 60 kilometers uh, to nearest bigger town. And I jumped on a train, overnight, overnight train, and, uh, and got the train to Slovakia. And from there, straight from the station in the morning, I, I hitchhiked over to uh, border crossing to Hungary. Then uh, I walked over the bridge there to Hungary through the crossing like you know all legal and uh yeah and then i just as i got to bloody hungary just uh over the border i was bloody waiting there like no kidding like six hours and then uh then some germans you know pulled up in a, uh in a mercedes and i said oh where are you going and i said well i want to go to Belgrade," and they said oh yeah well we're going near near there you know, Belgrade in Yugoslavia, and uh, and they dropped me off about fifty K out of Belgrade, and uh, and it was already like you know about eight o'clock at night, but still light, you know, because those days in the summer you have got long days there. Then uh, and as I you know first bloody truck I pulled you know waved, he stopped, jumped in, and uh, and he took me to Belgrade, and uh, and he said, where are you going in here? And I said, well, shit, you know, I don't. Know. I don't know, I just want to stay overnight somewhere. And uh, and he said, oh, yeah, there's a student's accommodations in here. Then, uh, and uh, and now I, I was going to university in Czechoslovakia, and I had my little uni card with me, university card. Mm. And uh, anyway, he dropped me off. I went there to reception, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, student from Czechoslovakia, holidaying. I said, oh, yeah, and I'll, I'll put you up. And uh, anyway, they put me up there for a night, which was quite good. And uh, and the next day, I was pretty at the at the Austrian embassy, just asked for a visa to go to Austria, and uh, and there already was a queue about you know two hundred meters long of other Czech people doing the same thing, you know, <laughs> taking the same opportunity to do the runner. Yeah, and uh, that's how it sort of worked out.
0: And yeah. through all of this, what did you? Uh, it blows my mind again that and and. 18 19 20 year old people these days of leaving your family i mean it's one of those things where to go to university or to move into state but they're still not that far away you're fleeing a country you're you're going to end up on the other side of the planet what did they feel about your whole plan and your oh like urge my to move? Uh,
1: like my dad you know like he was kind of always support supported you know, supportive of me bloody leaving the communist regime, you know then uh and uh but he kind of still they didn't believe it, you know, like when I told them I'm going they they didn't believe me, and uh it's uh yeah, but uh yeah, they started believing like when you know I didn't come back uh and it, it was sort of good uh 10 or 11 years when I sort of came back after the end of communism, yeah. So
0: it's, it's, how long did they not hear from you for, from when you left to when you got in, in contact with them?
1: Uh, it was uh, probably about uh, about two months, you know, because, like, once you get to a refugee camp, it's, it's not easy because uh, they lock you up, yeah? You go, like, in a prison, like, in a refugee camp, there is, a, like, a top floor... Where you're under the guards and you're in prison you can't get in, you can't get out because they just take your fingerprints and all that stuff and check you with the interpol and uh in those days, because there were no computers, no records, and all that stuff, took a long time mm. and uh it's uh yeah like you you locked up there for about about three weeks or something and uh yeah before the, before you get because lots of Lots of bloody bad people were doing runners, you know, lots of criminals and all that. They were running away from the law. I, I, was, I was running away to go in Formula One, but lots of people, they were running away from the law, you know. Then then they got to check you out and all. You know, it's a big process in those days. You know, these days it would take bloody 10 minutes, yeah. Mm. But uh, without all the technology and all that, you know, it was, it was very, very difficult to, to check you out.
0: Yeah. Given some of those unsavoury characters that were doing what you were doing and, and trying to leave, I guess it's a little bit that you have the good and the bad all trying to do the same thing at the one time. In that refugee camp, was there stuff that went down that was pretty nasty or bad or ill-treatment? Uh, yeah. or, what was Always the stuff that be- you
1: saw? Because, mate, like it's not just bloody people from a communist countries. You know, are people from all over the world. And uh, all different bloody religions, you know. Like you, you only you only hear about that uh, dramas they, you know, ten years down the track they had in uh, in Yugoslavia, you know, when all the bloody Serbs and Croats and uh, all these different uh, religions, you know, start killing themselves, and uh, you know that already was happening those days. Like I, I remember, you know, the Albanians and uh and the serbians they they had a bloody huge fights in there like they smuggled the machine gun into the camp and uh, you know and it it was like bloody open war there at some stage you know it was crazy yeah and uh and the people sort of going mad under those sort of they locked up similar like you do in Melbourne now, you know, like oh, your I don't pe- think we people compete. are locked up going mad. Oh, I, don't then, think,
0: uh, I don't think we can quite compete with uh, yeah. a refugee <laughs> camp in uh, in a communist country. or be Some people would uh, say the, the last four or five months down here at this part of the world, you're in the lovely Gold Coast, we're here in Melbourne. Uh, yeah. have been a little difficult but i think drawing the comparison is uh it's a very long bow considering uh, what, yeah, you yeah, but what you saw but i mean you know smuggling machine guns into a refugee yeah, camp yeah yeah no, it mean. was wow.
1: it was crazy there yeah it was crazy yeah it was crazy there yeah no it's uh, i i couldn't wait to get out of there then uh, luckily i was only like th- 3 or 4 months in there or 4 months yeah then uh, wouldn't want to be there any longer, but it, it helps you kind of to grow up, you know. And uh, it's just uh, helps you to sort of uh, judge some characters and all that, which I I kind of was pretty good at. Yeah.
0: Were there any close calls, or was it? Did you very much keep to yourself, or how? How did you did you feel like you had to? Okay, I need to have a very simple strategy of here of how I'm going to survive being in here, let alone. getting out Ah, of here, which is a whole other
1: thing. You just just can't trust anyone there, you know? Like, uh, what you don't have on you, well, it'll get nicked, you know? Like, I remember once, bloody, my shoes got nicked, you know? Like, you you bloody... uh, I I was actually a bit more productive than some people. I I went out, and because I could communicate in German, like, once I got out of the bloody... um, a quarantine or what they call it in there then uh, then they, you can move around sort of 75 kilometers radius around the camp and uh, and I managed to find a job then uh, I, I basically was going to came to only only sleep you know like early in the morning I jump on a on a train and uh, and went to vienna and uh, and I had a job in a vienna in a supermarket and, uh, you know, spent all day there and just, just came back. You know, one morning I wake up and I get a sho- no shoes, you know, and, and this is bloody December, no, uh, November.
0: And it's you cold. Know, it's
1: always cold. Well, then you got no choice, than bloody nick someone else's shoes. You know, then, uh, you know, either way you can't go to work. And, uh...
0: How did they know that you were going to come back from going off to work and coming back to the camp? I guess because it was your place to stay.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you so, couldn't. Self-policy. You know, you couldn't afford to stay somewhere else.
1: Like, you know, when it was warmer in the earlier days, you can sleep on a, on the a benches in the parks with all the other deros. Then, uh, but uh, you know, when it gets cold, like you know, refugee camp, it's like bloody
0: Hilton. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So fast forward us back to where we got up to. I'm sorry to fast forward around. Yeah. There's so many things to cover here. So you get to Australia in '79 in Sydney. What have you got with you when you get off that plane? Oh, nothing. The clothes on your back, pretty much. That's it.
1: I I, I didn't have a. I didn't even have a check-in luggage. I, I had a bloody travel document, which they gave me at uh, not passport, but travel document, which Australian embassy gave me in Vienna, with a refugee visa. And uh, you know, luckily, I had relatives in Sydney. Then I. I didn't have to go through the camps in Sydney, you know, like I, I stayed with the, with the relatives,
0: yeah. And did you – so from a point of view of having relatives here, did you know you have relatives here when yeah, you yeah, picked Australia? Course, yeah, yeah, of course, So you went, yeah. okay, so I know someone there. It's not like I'm completely alone yeah, in the yeah. whole country. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And then the plan – so then the plan – okay, we haven't forgotten the plan here. We're trying to get to Formula One. We're yeah, trying to yeah. get car racing. So we've got out of Czechoslovakia, tick – We've made it through the yeah. refugee camp. Tick. We've got yeah. to Australia, the home of the soon-to-be Formula 1 world champion, Alan Jones. That's a tick. Yeah. What's next? What's the next pathway in the next little part of the program of Thomas Meserer getting to car racing in Australia?
1: Well, the next, next thing was to, to make money to go racing. Then I, uh, At one stage, I make three jobs. Like my best years when I should be racing, I still believe my, you know, the best years from racing, it's from 19 to 26, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's the best years for racing. Well, shit, you know, I, I didn't get organized to buy a first Formula One car until I was 20, 25, you know, or 24, because, you know, you, know, you got to work, you got to save up the money. Then I I worked three jobs to save up money to go racing. What did you do? buy a car. Well, eventually, I want to keep saving money to go to England, but then I sort of couldn't resist, and I said, well I need to start bloody driving in here first like yeah, you can't save up no matter how much how hard you work, you cannot save up the amount of money you know mm-hmm. you you need to go and buy a drive in uh in u k then uh anyway, after I save up my first five grand i'll uh I uh, I bought a race car, I bought a Formula Ford, and uh, and I started in Formula Ford.
0: What were those three yeah. three jobs that you're doing? I think you were at Garbo, weren't you, as one yeah, of Yeah, there?
1: yeah, early in the morning. Early in the morning, I was on a garbage run, starting at 4 o'clock in the morning. By sort of 10 o'clock, I was in a panel shop, and uh, I kept painting cars. And uh, then I was a bloody kitchen hand in a, in a little restaurant at uh, King's Cross till about 10 o'clock at night. In, uh, washing got... dishes. They didn't have dishwashers then.
0: The, yeah. You were the dishwasher. You were... Yeah, I
1: was in the dishwasher, yeah. So you had yeah. a
0: hold of this dream and you were holding it so hard and going after it big time. So you got. Oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you what were you studying at university in Checo? I was studying
1: physics. I'm right. supposed to be a physics
0: teacher. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. How far did you get yeah. into that?
1: Ah, oh, just first year before I left.
0: <laughs> like most uni students in Australia too, first year out. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: but like it it wasn't really about studying, you know, like it's uh because in in Czechoslovakia all the all the big universities they uh they had a ski team which was running in a first division, yeah? Mhm. And uh and I had like three choices I had three universities they were after me to join their team and it It wasn't about what to study and what to do. it was just to join the team because they they gave me a little bit of money as well to to join the team and to ski for them and uh yeah, I really didn't care what I studied. I wasn't very good at it anyway. I wasn't doing much studying. I was just skiing. Yeah,
0: you, you were on your but, way to the University of Car Racing, my friend.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the physics was sort of. I always kind of was interested, you know, how the things works and 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 uh, yeah, it was all right. But I only did a year. Yeah.
0: So five thousand dollars gets you your first. Formula Ford race car in Australia. What was it? Where did you buy it from? Whose was it? What was the story with that car?
1: Well, I bought Auto Action and uh and look in a in a classified at the back and uh, there are Formula Fords for sale and there's fifteen thousand, twelve thousand, and ten thousand, and there's suddenly there's one for five thousand. And I thought, Jeez, you know, that's a good bloody deal. Then uh and I I knew nothing about it. Yeah, I, I never realized until after, you know, there are better cars and there are some worse cars. I said, well, they all got the same engine, you know, they all same things. This one's quite cheap. I can afford it, I'll buy it. And I bought it. And, uh, and then uh, after I bought it, then uh, first time I took the car to an engineering shop to do the, you know, wheel alignment done on it. And that was at Greenacre in Sydney. And that's where I met Wally Story. <laughs> and I couldn't speak English, mate. Like, yeah, it was very difficult. Like, at least now I can communicate, you know. But I, I couldn't speak English. It was very hard. But basically, Wally was saying, why the hell you buy this bloody thing, you know?
0: And what sort of car was it? And it was uh A it's called No, it's know, called Calbara.
1: You... Which one bloke made it in his in his garage back at home, yeah, yeah, and uh, and Wally told me like you know every time he took it out, something broke on it, and it was running so far in the back, like it's not a very good car you bought here, <laughs> and uh and I thought, well, car is a car anyway, then Wally showed me how to do the wheel alignment and few things on it, and uh and uh you know I, actually it worked for me because uh. Everyone thought that car was a shit box. And uh and I took it out. I remember I bought a dry line come to bloody surface Paradise Raceway. You wouldn't remember that. Yeah, no, I
0: do, I do. Yeah, it's yeah? not there now. It's it's a a housing development, isn't it? I think it's um there's not even a hint of that track left, sadly.
1: Yeah. Anyway, then I took it up here for my first run and uh and I put it on a front row and then everyone thought oh, geez, well you know, what's this guy like and this shitbox, was it doing on the front row? And, uh, and I was so excited on a start, I bent the clutch. It didn't go anywhere. And, uh...
0: And this is what, 1983?
1: Ni- yeah. That or? was in 1982, I Two. think. Yeah. End of 1982, yeah. And then I kind of persevered with the car and uh, in 83. And, uh, and I, I kind of, you know, I was going all right until I crashed it or something broke down or, you know, spun off or something. But, uh, Anyway, I, I was having a go. Yeah, I was having a go at it and uh and kind of got noticed a little bit in it. Yeah.
0: Then uh Who was helping you through all this? Surely you, you couldn't do this all on your own. You, you obviously No, I was doing it. Is no one helping you? You are prepping your own car on your yeah. own. Yeah. But when have you got yeah. time to do this, Thomas, when yeah. you have three jobs? Yeah, and I had uh well, you we only
1: were doing six races in a year, or you know, I only could do a few races.
0: Yeah. But when did you have time to prep this car if you had three jobs?
1: Well, you you got plenty of plenty of time over the weekend. True. Yeah, to prep the car.
0: Yeah. It
1: uh, had, had it it's not like bloody racing every weekend.
0: Uh, yeah. True, true, true. Uh, had yeah. you made, uh, become friends with anybody at this stage? Uh, were you a loner? Did you uh, spend some I time with like a, yeah. a group of mates? Or how, how, how were you situated at that point in that side of things? Yeah,
1: I had some mates that, you know, came from Czechoslovakia as well. And uh, and they sort of helped me with a car and, uh, you know, to push it on a trial line, go to race meetings and hold the board and, and all that. uh, Yeah, but most of the stuff I was doing on it myself,
0: yeah. It was a case of you don't know what you don't know at at that stage of your racing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah,
0: yeah. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and you might recognize their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centerpiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The $2 billion billion Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or petals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each petal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each petal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over 7 minutes and opened in just over 8, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer Team. And in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timkin in each episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast through the course of the year. Now it's back to the podcast. We've talked to a lot of people on this podcast over the journey of the last year and a half and one of the common themes with everybody who gets anywhere in motorsport is that they get a lucky break. They have a, a person or persons along the way that they meet at the right time who opens a door, uh, opens their wallet, uh, introduces them to someone. Who was the first one of that that helped get you to that next level in in Australia with the Formula Ford side of things?
1: Well, uh, you, you know the, the the most important bloke was Wally Story, and uh, and uh, and Wally actually. You know, he could see that. You know, well, I can do all right given given the good car, and uh, and you know, one stage uh, he he rings me and and he said, "Oh, did that Kiwi bloke contact you?" And I said, "What Kiwi bloke?" He said, "Oh, no, no, there was a Kiwi bloke. He he bought a he bought a Reynard Formula Ford." It's on the way from England, coming in here, and uh, he was asking about you, and he wants you to drive it. And, uh, and I said, well, mate, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to Europe on, uh, on Tuesday. This was like on Saturday. I said, oh, on Tuesday, I'm going to Europe because I signed a contract to bloody uh, be a ski instructor in St. Moritz because I had I owed so much money, because I borrowed a little bit of money. I, owe, I owed some money to Wally as well in his shop, you know, to getting all the bits and pieces for a car and repairs. Suddenly you realize, you know, three jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to bloody support racing. Then uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I had to stop, and I'll, I got a job for a couple of months here at Snowy Mountains, at Parish Valley, Valley, being a ski instructor. And I made good money, and suddenly I could make you know more money than working three jobs, just doing bloody ski instructing. Yeah, it was easy. And uh, then the company they helped I signed a contract with them to go to Switzerland for a off season to to work in Switzerland for like double money. And I thought, Jesus, that's you know that save me more money to go go racing. Then I, I paid all the all my debts and all that stuff, and. Uh, and, uh, Kate, my girlfriend back then, she quit the job and she was going to come with me to, to Switzerland. And then Wally made this call. And, uh, anyway, cut the long story short. I went to see that Kiwi bloke and, uh, and I canceled the trip, canceled the contract. Like the company wasn't very happy with me that I, you know, didn't follow the contract. But, uh, anyway, and didn't go anywhere. Stay here, and uh, and that was my break. The, you know, the car arrived, and about three months later, and uh, yeah, the rest of history. Then, uh, then I did really well in that car. Yeah, like in my year when I won the championship, I think I won every race, every race, and uh, and uh, yeah, and at the end, I didn't do the last round of the championship because uh, David had a such a good offer on that car from New Zealand he said oh mate like uh, oh, I can't refuse this like the bloke's offering me more money than you know much more than I paid for it you know a year ago then he sold the car to New Zealand and I, I had to I had to lease a car for a for the last race or well, second last race at Winton just to make sure I can win the championship and uh, and as it happened, I won that race in that car as well. Then, uh, which kind of, you know, helped me as well, because everyone's saying, "Oh, yeah, well, he was in a very good car. That's why. He, that's why he's winning so easily." But you know, I, I got in a car that never, never was in a top five, and and won that race as well. And, uh, and that clinched me the championship. Then I didn't have to do the last race.
0: And the David that you mentioned was a fellow named David Hayden. David Hayden, correct. And that was an '83 Reynard, a blue, correct Reynard. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he had a business, didn't he? It was, it was he a had Delcare. a he
1: had a pine furniture business, which called Dalkar. He was doing pine bets. Mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that was on a car, and uh, and that was my break here in Australia in a in a Formula Ford.
0: Yeah, And didn't the nickname Flying Penis get a run somewhere during your Formula 4 days? Yeah, that was the that old was the, car. That was the old car, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> we had um, a lovely time a few years ago with you and Tony Longhurst, uh, Neil Crompton and I, with the, the Shannon's Legends of Motorsport TV series, which is oh, yeah, of, yeah yeah the really fun yeah. things that I've been lucky enough to be involved in. And you told us the great story, and sadly at the time – I couldn't find the vision in the Channel 7 vault to go with it. I know a lot of our listeners will have heard it before, but you have to retell it. It's a corker. About the day at Amaru Park uh, where you thought you were going to win a race and you celebrated a little bit too early, didn't you?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. That was so funny. That was well, not so at the funny, time, I'm sure it, it wasn't. It was, uh, well, it was, uh, it was raining, yeah?
0: It's absolutely
1: pissed down with rain all day, all day. And... uh then, uh, you know, we raced in wet and uh, it was really between Mike Quinn. I don't know if you remember Mike Quinn. Yeah, a, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Quinny and Alola and, and me and this car. And uh, and we, no kidding, like we we would have put half a lap on a, on a field. Yeah. And we were sort of fighting hard. And, and Quinny, he was a hard bugger, you know, like he's, uh, yeah. Anyway, and then we got to the second last corner. And, uh, I don't even know. Anyway, we we kind of side by side. I don't even know who was leading, if it was me and he tried to pass me, or or, or vice versa, because that's not important in this story. But uh, anyway, we we banged wheels, and you know, we both spun. We both spun, and uh, and luckily, I kept the car going. Yeah, and uh, didn't stall it, but got bogged in the mud. And then I'm just getting it out of the mud and just, you know, but we had such lead, you know, no one's around. Then I managed to make it on the road and going into the last corner and, uh, like full of shit on the tires with the mud and all that. And I could see all my, you know, team just jumping on a wall and all that. And I'll I'll put my hand up and i put my hand. I lost it. I lost it. mate, I spun it. And, uh, and I go in the infield, and I'm like hundred meters in the infield, still leading, yeah. <laughs> and then, then coming from infield, you know, on a wet grass, like crawling, crawling, you know, to the finish line. And then I could see Malcolm, you know, Malcolm Ostler
0: Yep.
1: He's coming around the last corner, and he beat me about a half a car length. Yeah, and then I finished second. <laughs> And then it just made it on all the news, you know, on the Sydney news. <laughs> you got more- <laughs> Look at this! Look at this idiot! You know, he's got a race one, put a hand up, and spins it. And, uh, and uh, like David said, he never had so much coverage. He said, like Jesus, if you won, would have won a race, would have done nothing. But yeah. this one gave me so much coverage, and uh, he said, "I'm going to sell so many bets." <laughs>
0: Sometimes sometimes spinning is better than winning, isn't it? Yeah, Uh, yeah. So so you win the Formula Ford championship in in Australia in eighty five and then the next part of the plan. You've got to get on a plane, you've you've done you know, you've you've got started, you've learnt some lessons, you've once a lot of races.
1: I won the return ticket to Europe.
0: In the days of the driver to Europe series for Formula Ford as it was, yep.
1: Yeah, I won return ticket. I managed to sold my old car. I had five grand. And uh and off I went to to England. But at that time, uh it was uh like at the presentation dinner at ARDC, you know, when they present you with a trophy for winning the championship and all that, Tim Schenken was there. Tim Schenken just about came back from europe retired in his racing to to take up the job uh at camps
0: mm, and he's still there
1: and uh and he was there and that's where i met him and uh and tim's like oh what's the plans young man and uh, and i said well no i'm going to england i gonna be in formula one in two years and uh you know <laughs> young and naive and uh you know, you, you you think you're absolutely unbeatable because you had a good year and uh, you know, full of confidence. And uh, and he said, well, you know, like I uh, I ring Adrian for you, which Adrian Reynard, you know, like he's a very good mate with Adrian, and uh, you know, because you won in in his car in here, maybe he can sort of help you in there and. Uh, Anyway, and that was a kind of a huge break for me when I got to England. You know, I arrived at the airport and uh, and I I had, uh, you remember Steve Farrell? You wouldn't know
0: Steve I Farrell. I remember the name. I remember the name. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We used to race in Formula 14 here when I started, yeah? And then he went to England and ran a team. And uh, anyway, he, he, he met me at the airport with a representative from Reinhardt as well with some you know, salesman from Reinhardt. And, uh, and kind of, you know, in a, in a bloody two days later, I'm in their brand new car in a 1986 new Reynard, which was a bloody shitbox. <laughs> uh, I'm at Snetterton, you know, testing. And, uh, and they said, they said, oh, we're sending, sending the, you know, kid who's pretty good in these cars, he's gonna sort of help you, tell you about the track and all that. And that was Eddie Irvine. <laughs> and, uh, that was the first time I met Eddie. <laughs> anyway, I, I get to bloody Snetterton. And no kidding, it was so cold. You can imagine February, February at Snetterton. Yeah, it's an old bloody airfield, you know, up north in bloody England. And uh, no kidding, like it was about minus two degrees, yeah. And uh Eddie sort of, you know, talks to me about track yeah Eddie, used second gear there. So, yeah this this is the line and all that. And I, I, I jump in a car and I, I I I didn't even use my racing gloves, I used my skiing gloves. That's how cold it was. It was freezing, mate. Absolutely freezing. And you kind of you kind of think you know, well, this is maybe a bit of a chance. Like, I don't want to smash the car, you know. I need to sort of take it easy. But at the same time, I, I need to have a little bit of a go. And uh, anyway, they were testing this car already for about four weeks. And, uh, you know, I did about 10 laps. And then they call me in. and uh, And I come in and they're all bloody dancing around me like I'm a bloody superstar. They they had a contract ready for, oh, yeah, we got to go see Andrea, Adrian in the office. You know, we go straight to Bister and all that. Like, I I went about two tenths quicker than, you know, they did all in all the previous testing. And uh, with the established drivers, they were doing it. And uh, and they uh, absolutely thought I'm a bloody superstar. You know, then I... Uh, I went like, I think same day I went to bloody, I went to a factory, to Reinhardt factory, and uh, and they did a contract with me to, to drive for them for the 86 season. Yeah.
0: With no money and, uh, required?
1: No money required. Wow. You know? Then, uh, well, unknown to me, yeah, about two days later, I had bloody Ralph Furman talking to me from Van Diemen. Said, ah, oh, you don't want to drive that shit box? The car's no good. My car's much better. I want you to drive my car, you know. And uh, and I said, Rolf, I bloody did a contract with them. I can't, you know. I'm not going to back out, you know. Then uh, anyway, but the, you know, the car was a shit box. Like soon as the weather got warmer, and once you get heat in the tires, then uh, the car was a shit box. Like it, it wasn't good at all. But I persevered with it for a, you know as long as, you know, my contract was, and uh, and had some good results, like finished top five. And once I was third and lost that on a bloody last, over the over the Woodcock chicane at Silverstone on the last lap, like, Jesus, i end up in a catch fencing because I wanted to bloody outbreak the cars in front of me. I got a good toe, and I thought I could win this, you know, clip the cap, end up in a catch fencing there, just, you know, past the finish line, but in a catch fencing. Then I didn't I kind of cross it, yeah. Then uh, anyway, but at the same time, Reinhardt was going good in Formula Three. You know, they started Formula Three, and uh, and had uh, Andy Wallace doing quite well in the Formula Three. And uh, Adrian sort of comes to me and said, "Mate, I, uh, you know, the car's no good. We're not going to persevere with this. I need to concentrate for Formula Three. I'll, uh, I can't, you know." guarantee you anything in a Formula 3, but like you can work in a factory for the rest of the year and we build a new car for the next year and I want you in a, in a new car next year. I said like, I didn't come here to, you know, to work in a factory. I came here to get in Formula 1 and I want to be there next year because I'm running out of time. You've
0: got and, your plan and, and uh, you're sticking to it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, anyway, then uh, it's... Uh, I said, well, now, thanks for all your help and all that, but uh, i tried try to sort of press on with, with racing, you know, because uh, at the same time, the bloke who ran Quest cars, like you probably
0: never heard of Quest cars. I but, vaguely uh, remember the name, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like Johnny Herbert was
1: driving with them. and uh, And the car, you know, I was kind of racing with Johnny, you know. Like even Johnny couldn't get that car going, but the bloke said, Oh, mate, like it's not doing Johnny any good to be hanging around in this car after winning a festival last year. And, it, you know, just come and drive for us. And, uh, I want you to drive in a festival in a car for us. And, uh, and then you can land a track, you know, a little bit, land a few more tracks and, uh, before the next year. And, uh, anyway, I finished season with them again, you know, had no money then didn't cost me any, but, uh, yeah. Run all right, but I never, never did any good in it. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, that was my first year in uh, in England. Got a little bit of a setback. But uh, for the following year, you know, Ralph Furman came back to me again. And he said, mate, I want you in my car. And this is what i going to do for you. I give you chassis. And I underwrite every crashes you have. I'll give you all the spare parts. You just need to sort yourself out an engine. Then uh, and I had a pretty good relationship with ministers. They do you know, did Formula Ford engines, they were very good. Then uh, anyway I got the I got the engine from them for free and I got a chassis, chassis from uh, from Ralph. With all the spur parts underwritten, I I just needed to find money for bloody tyres and uh, and running costs. Then, uh, yeah, then I I worked at Brands Hatch, and uh, I got a little sponsorship as well from Australian bloke who ran the Mazda dealership. Used to be in partnership with AJ in the early days, Richard Knight. Richard Knight was the first Australian to win the first one to win Formula Four Championship in Australia. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. Yep, I then he had a
1: Mazda dealership at uh, Swiss Cottage in London, and uh, and he he bought me a trailer, and uh, and I used his spare parts van on a weekend. I always picked it up on Friday night when they finished with it, and dropped it off on Sunday night when I came back on Monday morning, and that's what I used to tow my race car behind, and uh, and uh, did the season myself and. Uh, and I finished second to Eddie Irvine in a British Championship.
0: I was going and to say, uh, I was going to say, who who else are the names of the drivers you were racing against that our listeners might have heard of because of what they did in their in their latter oh, career? Of course, Eddie is so well known because of his time at Ferrari and at Jaguar, and, and yeah, just yeah. getting punched by it in center when he started in Formula One. Who were some of the other the names of note that you were banging wheels with back in those days in, in Formula oh, Four?
1: It would have been like you know JJ Lehto. You know, uh, he he made it to Formula One. You know, oh, I don't know Kenny Brack. Indy Kenny bragg won Indianapolis. Yep. Yep. I think he won it twice. Man, he might he nearly killed himself once as well. And, in Texas,
0: uh, Texas, he had a huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Then, uh, you know, Elaine, Elaine Menu. You know, that year Elaine came third, in Eddie won it. I came second. Elaine came third in a championship.
0: And so uh, some good names and, there. Some guys who you know you were among guys who. Proved in the latter part of you know the, the years that went on that they were they were serious players. They weren't just uh, oh, guys yeah, who went yeah. nowhere they, after that.
1: Because the eighty-seven Formula Four Championship, it was the last year of the of the good championship. Yeah, because after that it got fragmented. You know, in eighty-seven, all the best drivers from you know young kids from around the world that came to England, they went in a Formula Four. Because that was the only option. Hmm. After 87, they had the Formula Opel and Formula Renault and some other Formula, yeah? And suddenly it got fragmented, yeah? Then, uh, oh, Alan McNeish was another one that raced in a Formula Ford with us, yeah. Then, uh, he, he won Le Mans and got in Formula One
0: too. He did, then, Toyota, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Then uh, Anyway... Then, uh, you know, that was the last good year of, uh, of Formula Ford. And, uh, and I still, I still treat that as a, uh, my, my really best achievement in racing because I was running the car myself and I was against professional teams and, uh, and I finished second. And, uh, I couldn't beat Eddie. Like, he was in a Duckham's Works car. And uh, I finished like I finished six times second behind him in the race, and I said, jeez, I can't can't beat this prick." What what do I need to do? And I one at Silverstone, yeah, I beat him, but I didn't. But it's a you wouldn't believe this. You know, we we on a bloody uh, club track, shorter track at Silverstone, and again, like we kind of dominated that year. And uh, and we pulled away, yeah. We pulled away, and it's us two. And Eddie was actually quite smart behind the wheel, you know, like he he knew what it requires. And you know? and we worked together, you know, slipstreaming each other, and pulled away from a field. We then didn't hassle each other until we pulled away from a field, and uh, then we go on a bloody second last lap, yeah. Then. uh you don't want to, you don't want to lead. You don't want to lead on a, on a second, last lap because, you know, you, you get nailed on a slipstream and on the last straight. Then, uh, anyway, i I slow down so much, you know, for him to get past me and he slowed down as well. And like we, we, you know, because nobody wanted to lead, then, uh, and then you know I, I accelerated, and and then I bloody jump on the brakes. He had no choice. He passed me, yeah. Then uh, then he passed me just when the last last lap started, yeah. Then uh, and I'm where I need to be. I'm bloody right behind him. We go on a on a bloody last straight before the wood could go, uh, and uh, and uh, I'm in a slipstream and. Uh, and he covers it. and I'll, Anyway, I'll, I nailed him around the outside. And I said, I finally beat the prick. You know, I've got the bloody checkered flag. I said, thanks God, finally I beat him. However, about bloody 100 meters behind us, when the rest of the field coming through Woodcut, there was a big shunt. And they threw the red flag and took the bloody result from a previous lap. When I jumped on a brakes and let him through, then, uh, anyway, then I finished yeah. second behind him again. <laughs> yeah. Then I couldn't, it. yeah, I couldn't beat him. Yeah. Then, uh, but sometimes, you know, the, the things don't work out and, uh, the way you, you plan. Yeah. Then, uh, anyway, that was, uh, I still reckon that was my best achievement to finish second in the British Formula Four Championship when it was good. Yeah. When all the best blokes were in it. But unfortunately, I was too old by then. You know, like I was, you know, I was nearly twenty-eight, and uh, and if I would have done what I did, and was same age as Eddie, you know, I would have got picked up from then, because Eddie got picked up by Marlboro, and he had a bloody year of Formula Three with Marlboro backing. Alan Menu, who finished behind me, he got picked up by Marlboro because you know he had a backing from Switzerland. Marlborough, Switzerland. Then, uh, and I, uh, I was offered. I was offered Works Drive from Van Diemen for the following year. Duckham's Drive from Ralph, and I said, oh, "Ralph, I'm too bloody old for it now. Like, you know, it makes no difference to my career if I win it next year. Then uh, I'll I'll try to get in a Formula Three somehow. And uh, and I did a few Formula Three races when they. Sort of needed someone to stand in, and uh, and someone got sick, and you just hang around the bloody pits and, and waiting if some opportunity come, but nothing really came, you know. Then uh, the only I had a good chance to to join Alan Docking in a Formula Three team, and uh, and I needed half a budget required, which still was like I needed I needed sixty thousand pounds, yeah. Mm. to to do the season with Alan Alan would have done it you know like he said I've got I've got Mika Salo which he's fully sponsored by cold cigarettes and I can just throw the car you know another car in the trial line and just run it sort of you know just for I I couldn't find that I couldn't find that 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 was my closest thing in a you know in a Formula 3 to a good drive but uh, yeah I I never could find that kind of money and uh, and uh, you couldn't do it like yourself, like I was doing Formula Four. You couldn't do it in Formula Three that way.
0: Another yeah. level, whole another level.
1: Yeah, 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 you just couldn't do it. No, no chance. Yeah,
0: but you got to say to yeah. get to the point that you got to, even there, nineteen eighty-seven, you're runner-up in the British Formula Four Championship. You've you've left Checo, You've got all you know. You've been ticking the boxes along the way. It's barely cost you a dollar here because you've ended up. Do you well, th- do you feel got- like you do you feel like you got the, the right break at the right time, or did you have the a, a great ability to build relationships, or do you think you got a, a few lucky breaks? Or looking back, well, on it, what
1: unfortunately, was unfortunately, if if you don't have money, you know, you need to make the most out of the break you got. Like uh, you know, the rich kids they're having a break after break. It doesn't matter. Mm. If they if they don't do it today, well, they have another break tomorrow, another break after, because they got plenty of money. Mm. Like for me, I had to make the most out of the little breaks they were there, and uh, and I I kind of thought I uh, you know I achieved that, but then you get to a point where sort of you know you need more, you actually need someone with you know with big cash to and, and then I was then I was getting too old anyway. I was too old, like Jesus, you know. It was, uh, yeah. Then at that time, I, I realized, oh, bloody my dream, I, I failed. You know, I, I'm never gonna get to any further. Then, uh, then I thought, well, you know, let's at least try to make a little bit of living out of it if I can, and uh, you know, which I managed, and uh, and it was all right. Yeah, it was all right.
0: But you stayed over that way, and then a little opportunity came. To end up, so it wasn't a case of before you got the drive or part of the drive with what became a Bathurst win with Tony Longhurst and, and Frank Gardner, was that you were helping because you were over th- that side of the planet uh, sourcing parts for their new Sierra?
1: Yeah, because, uh, you know, as you know, Frank was the one in 87 that put the official protest against Texaco Sierras mm. at Bathurst. You know, he he did it on behalf of BMW because uh, you know BMW Schnitzer team they couldn't do it. Well, they knew the Texaco cheating, but Texaco knew that Schnitzer was cheating. <laughs> yeah, they knew too much on each other. Then uh, BMW, well, they used Frank to put a protest on a on a Texaco car and and told Frank exactly what they fudging it with. Yeah and suddenly frank loses a bmw deal to brock and uh and Long has got no car to do to to drive oh that ford sierra's looking all right well let's try to do that but he couldn't get any bits for it you know because uh he put a protest against them then uh, anyway then frank rings me you know in england and uh, and he says oh well, can you Help us. We need to sort some stuff. And uh, I actually helped a little bit, you know, Rudy's son, you know, Rudy Egenberger, ran those Texaco Sierras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his son came to England to race Formula Ford. And, uh, and Ralph Furman, because he was with Van with Diemen, Ralph Furman to, you know, ask me if I can help him. Then I got to know his name was Thomas as well, Thomas Egenberger. And I got to know Thomas quite well, and uh, anyway, when all this came with Frank, I was quite straightforward to to Rudy. You know, I I put it to, to Rudy, hey, you know, this is for Frank. I know he fucked you over, then. Uh, but uh, you know, can you help with some bits and pieces? You know, it was very political and all that, and uh, and actually, Rudy was he, he was a Rudy was like Larry Perkins. You know, he was really down to earth, hard worker, getting his hands dirty. He wasn't a politician, yeah? And uh anyway, like, he he actually was, you know, he was very good about it, that uh, I don't try to go behind his back or whatever. I was straightforward to him. And because I helped his son, then uh, Rudy said, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll help you. He always, you know, and all the bloody hearings he had here, when that protest, he he kept saying, "Oh, I can't speak English." You know, he actually speaks English quite well, really. You know, he could, uh, yeah. But anyway, and uh, then I got some bits and pieces, you know, from them. And uh, I remember even before I flew to Australia to, to Tony, uh, you know, to drive with Tony, I went to, I went to Birmingham. Because they ran a street race in Birmingham
0: mm, in
1: England. and Rudy ran a couple of cars there for Steve Soper and, uh, oh, no, only one car. He ran a car there, Texaco car for Steve Soper. I just went there to pick up some bits and pieces as well, just about like two days before I was, I was flying out. And then I also had a good relationship with one Ford dealer in there in the UK where, you know, we sourced all the, all the parts for, for Tony, for the cars, because you couldn't get anything in here. Yeah, and uh, and then Frank said like, "Oh yeah, like, you know, we give you a drive. You do this, and uh, you know, he paid me a little bit as well. And uh, he said, 'I'll give you the drive.' Then, and, uh, and that's how it came about. Yeah,
0: and it worked out pretty well because you won the race at, at Bathurst. Sander didn't go quite as well, although I think oh you, no, this you actually- first lap. I think there was a problem with the car, but then you went like a steam train once it was fixed.
1: Yeah, yeah, like that. That was the the first time I thought, oh, maybe we got a bit of a chance because, well, Tony, Tony's bloody, the, the tail shaft let go, you know, on the start. You know, it just, just broke the bloody joint. But he managed to limp it back to a pit, changed the tail shaft, lost about 12 laps or something. And then we went back out. And we were actually fastest car, yeah, for the rest of the race. And, uh, that's first time I realized, Jesus, you know, maybe we can do quite good here because I can tell you I wasn't comfortable in a car. Yeah. And, uh, because I, I never driven a bloody 2 car. You know, all, all my driving was in a bloody single-seaters. And, uh, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, when I first drove it, I said, Jesus, this is a shitbox. You know, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's like, you know, so much turbo lag. Yeah. It's bloody heavy and all that. And, uh, it's undrivable, you know, but I, I kind of managed, you know, I managed and, uh, and, uh, at the end, you know, it, it worked out all right, right? We, we never thought the car was going to last, you know, at Budhurst. Like that's why, you know, the plan was I'm going to do the last stint because they were 99% sure the car won't be running by then. <laughs>
0: You know, because <laughs> it's so normal that the the regular primary team owner driver is in the car for the well, the end of the race right, for because, the last stint, but it didn't work out that way.
1: Yeah, because like we never thought it's going to be running like all day, you know. They, because they were quick, but they were fragile, and uh, and I tell you, Tony, he just grabbed it by the scruff of an neck. and uh, Jesus, like what he did in qualifying, like gee, I couldn't, uh, no way I could do that. No way I could do that, you know? But uh in a race, then I I got into race and uh, I remember in my, my stint like you know I, I kind of got a bit more comfortable and then I, I passed Larry and I passed Brancatelli in a in another Sierra and uh, and it kind of kept it, you know, in a in a top three all the time. Then uh, and then, you know, the other shit itself and by the time you I got to it in the last stint yeah, that was funny. They couldn't t- get the wheel off. You don't know this. They couldn't get the wheel off. We were then banging it with the hammers and rattle guns. Couldn't get a wheel off. Then they decided to leave it on. I went out on a three new tires and a, and a right rear. Right rear was already stint stint old, <laughs> you know. Then, uh, But at the same time, you know, every bloody gear change, the puff of smoke was coming out of it. And I oh, shit, you know, like. Anyway, I just nursed at home because we had a, we had a good lead. And, uh, you know, I just shifting gear at bloody 7,000 reps or even less and, uh, and just nursing at home and, and do all that. And, uh, and luckily, luckily, you know, the car lasted and, uh, and we end up winning it, you know. And, uh, it's, uh, but I, you know, personally, I feel, like, I drove much better. I have a bigger goal following year when I was with Larry in a VL Commodore in a HRT car, you did, know, we finished did. fifth, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I drove much better then. And, uh, it was just so much better car to drive the Commodore because of the drivability of the engine. Yeah. But later on, to be honest, you know, the Sierras got much better because I was still living in England for another couple of years after that, and, uh, and I get the opportunity, got the opportunity to drive a few races there in a British Championship.
0: I was going to ask in that. A, That's something that a lot of people probably don't know. But you drove yeah, a few yeah, yeah, and and the, Andy
1: Andy Rouse's car, and uh, and yeah, the car was so much better then, you know with the electronics. They just gone on top of it with the electronics, and they they managed to control the turbo lag, and uh, and it was yeah, it was much better car, and I was much better, much more comfortable in it then.
0: Yeah, uh, did, didn't you also drive a Maserati bi-turbo in one of those yes, British races? Yes, I did K one races? race. Was it a shitbox as well? Race.
1: I did one race, and uh, no, uh, sorry, I did uh, try to do two races. First one, it shit itself in a bloody in a practice, and finally, when we make it through practice and qualifying, it shit itself on a warm-up lap. Then I never never really got to race it, and I said. Jesus, I don't need this bloody hassle, you know. And uh, anyway, then I I sort of uh, uh, got a call up to drive in a in in that Sierra in a aroused Sierra. It was sponsored by Labatt's Labatt's beer, you know, the Canadian mm-hmm. lager. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Then uh, yeah, and I, I I had a sort of good good fun in that. It was good. Yeah, I think I finished on the podium a couple of times. And uh,
0: yeah. It was good fun, and was it over there? You mentioned Alan Docking before. For our listeners who don't know, he's an expat Aussie who, for so many years, ran Alan Docking Racing with a bunch Correct. of amazing drivers in in British Formula Three and, and other categories. And uh, his nephew Lucas worked at Holden Racing Team and with Max Kea for many years at the time. That you yeah. would have been uh, enduro driving at, at HRT, yeah. Um, yeah. At a time, they, they ran a Commodore in the British Touring Car Championship. Am I right in remembering that you had a drive somewhere along the line and that would have yes, probably been your first was, V8 Commodore? That was, test? My, that was
1: my, my first drive in a Holden. I think it was in 1990. Oh, I think it's Oh, uh, no, of 89. Years before, a couple of years before. 89. That. I reckon it's even after earlier. After Bathurst. Than that. that was after Bathurst. Mm-hmm. 88. Yeah. Like, Alan was running this car for a. Uh, for Piggy Piggy Thompson Piggy Thompson uh, he had a pig farm in Scotland a Scottish bloke and he bought it and Alan was running it for him and I think his son raised and, uh Thompson uh, in British Touring touch, James Championship. James James Thompson correct yeah I think yeah. so like years and years later like he was only a kid then yeah
0: then uh,
1: anyway then I first drove it around Silverstone And I couldn't believe how bad it is. I said, Jesus. I said, said, how how someone can bloody raise this? You know, that was terrible because, um, you know, like you drive single-seaters and then you drive that thing and especially around a place like Silverstone. And uh, Jesus, like. You know i was sideways everywhere and catching and you know, i couldn't stop it and i said jesus alan this is a this is a huge shit box you know? <laughs> i never sort of thought those days i would end up bloody driving in those things
0: so that's part one of our chat with thomas mesura on the v8 sleuth podcast powered by timkin i nearly said mazira but i didn't uh some, you could probably hear it in my voice in that podcast I was just staggered. I knew so much of Thomas's story before he came to Australia, but I didn't know the level and the breadth and the sheer passion and dedication to getting out and to chasing his dream. I think a lot of people can take a lot out of what was in that episode. I know that I certainly did. Make sure you stick around. Part two, we talk about Larry Perkins, the Holden Racing team, Peter Brock, where he was when he got the news that Peter had tragically been killed in 2006. We talk about nearly getting a Formula One star to race with him in the Bathurst 1000. Thomas tackles the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and the Motor Focus Top 10 shootout as well. Don't forget, sign up to our V8 Sleuth newsletter. You can do that through the v8sleuth.com.au website and you'll be across all of the latest news. We're putting out regular newsletters with links to the stories on our site, the new products that are upcoming and that are being released on the market. Follow us on socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're pretty much everywhere. Give us that review here on the podcast on any app that you listen to. Five stars is the only way to go. Anyway, I'm Aaron Noon and hope you've enjoyed this one. Make sure you listen to part two. It's a doozy as well. The V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken.